book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is in the Old Testament, the eighth book, the eighth book from the beginning, after the book of Judges, before the book of First Samuel. Ruth. We are beginning a, a new, taking a little break in Matthew, and beginning a new verse-by-verse study through this great book, partly for selfish reasons, for uh, for my schooling right now. I have a number of projects I have to do in the book of Ruth, so I figured if I'm going to study and benefit from the book, why can't you as well? So thank you for your forbearance, and I hope it'll be a good study. The book of Ruth. Well, this side of heaven, it's just very normal for life to be hard. That's just how it is most of the time. And in those hard times, life doesn't usually pause and say, well, how do you feel about this? Uh, can I fluff your pillow? Do you need some adjustments? Uh, things keep going. We have to keep going. We have to keep making decisions and living. But if we're not careful, if you've struggled like I have and do, we can sometimes be man-centered, take matters into our own hands, make rash decisions and bad decisions, pragmatic decisions. And the easy way out, of course, the easier way out will often present itself as what is best, what feels easiest and best. Somehow, interestingly, often presents itself as God's will. What a coincidence. But oftentimes the decisions we make in these difficult times we make for practical reasons can end in a mess. Practicality often is not always practical. We're faced with these types of decisions daily and the big things and the small and all the struggles. We can easily get ourselves into a mess. If you've lived long enough, this has happened. And sometimes we can even think that, you know, how am I going to get myself out of this? Whether you are directly or indirectly responsible, how are we going to get ourselves out? But the good news is that whatever, uh, whatever mess we get ourselves in or whatever mess we find ourselves in, all is not lost because God is on the throne and he's a God full of grace, the God of the Bible is. And he's in the business of pulling us out of the pit. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Ruth. This, this great Old Testament book. Now, in Old Testament times, uh, before Christ was crucified and risen bodily from the grave, uh, the book of Ruth, a little bit about Ruth, was typically gathered into a cluster of five Old Testament books called the Megalith, or five scrolls, along with the Song of Solomon's, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Lamentations, Old Testament expositors would uh, read the megalith out loud in the synagogue on usually five special occasions, and the entire book of Ruth would be read at uh, usually at the celebration, the Old Testament celebration of Pentecost, uh, sometimes known as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. That feast which celebrated God's kindness and bringing that early harvest in the month of Mayish. So Ruth was intended to be read out loud and heard in one sitting. 
Uh, besides the fact that it is the inerrant word of God, it is a lively and profound piece of literature with a wonderful plot and a storyline. So I think it's appropriate here at the outset of our uh, study. I think it's going to take us about six weeks to get through it to hear the book. In the Old Testament, they, these books were meant to be heard in long readings. I think it's appropriate for us to hear the book, the entire book in one setting. So I'm going to read it. It takes about 10-ish minutes to read. So follow along as I read the book of Ruth. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Translation. Follow along. I'll start in Ruth chapter 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed and there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people in giving them food. Recall that in the Old Testament, Lord, capital L, all in capitals, translates the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenant name of God. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went along the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave, to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there I'll be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. But when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since Yahweh has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabites, said to Naomi, Please, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. 
Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May Yahweh be with you. And they said to him, May Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to the servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She's the young Moabite woman who returned from Na- with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the reapers after the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go glean into another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. She said, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May Yahweh reward your work and your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you've comforted me. Indeed, you've spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and she served and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of Yahweh who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative and he is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabites said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they've finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that, I, that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids he were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and shall go, you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he'll tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say, I'll do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly and covered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative. The Hebrew there translates redeemer. Then he said, may you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You've shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. 
Now, it's true I'm a close relative. However, there's a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he'll redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I'll redeem you as Yahweh lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that's on you and hold it. So she held it and measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And then she said, wait, my, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he, he said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. Now, this is the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this is the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed the sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I've acquired Ruth the Moabites, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who are in the court and elders said, we're witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring, which Yahweh will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and Yahweh enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed is Yahweh, who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. And may he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon. To Salmon was born Boaz, to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, to Jesse, David. The inerrant word of God. 
Daniel Block has said of the book of Ruth that it is widely recognized as a superlative literary achievement of ancient Israel. As a piece of literature, it is one of the most delightful ever produced. 18th and 19th century German statesman and writer Johann Goethe said that Ruth is, quote, the loveliest complete work on a small scale. Uh, Since we're just beginning our verse-by-verse exposition of this book, uh, a couple of extra minutes to familiarize what's going on here. There's a, a significant amount of Old Testament material that the writer of Ruth assumes that we know. We don't exactly know who wrote it, probably Samuel. We don't exactly know when, perhaps uh, in the time of, of David, just before, to establish the kingship, very important ramifications for the Davidic covenant, who through which and whom would bring the Messiah. Ruth, well, whoever the human author was, is God-breathed and errant scripture. The name of the book, of course, comes from one of the main characters. Of course, the main character is God, but the main human Character. The only other place Ruth is mentioned in Holy Scripture is interestingly and very significantly in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, in the genealogy of Christ. We'll talk more about that later. This is the only book named after a non Israelite in the Old Testament, and that it is named after an Old Testament, uh, excuse me, a non Israelite woman is remarkable. Women were typically held somewhat inferior in some of the ancient East cultures. Uh, She is from the ancient, extinct, and by Israel, loathed nation of Moab. Even more amazing is that this Moabite woman, scholars agree, is in fact the woman of Proverbs 31, the excellent wife after whom Proverbs 31 was written. Ruth is the model Gentile. She is the model Gentile, Gentile meaning a non-Jew. Recall that Gentiles were not the initial chosen people of God, that Jews were the nation from Abraham. God began with them, brought the Messiah and salvation through the Jews. Gentiles were called to come meet the God of Israel, who is also the God of all people, of course. Gentiles were to forsake the mythical gods of their nations and come and find forgiveness and care under the God of Israel. And despite the failures of Israel uh, to be a light to the nations, Exodus 19 and so on, Ruth does exactly this. She puts faith in God alone. Now, how can this short, obscure little Old Testament book have benefit? How could this possibly benefit you? After all, there are, of course, There's no supernatural miracles. There's no healing. There's no words from God or angelic visits. Why would God include it in the Bible of all things which he could have included? A couple of things. First, Ruth is not about. First, what it's not about. A couple of things. Ruth is not about how to date, how to find a spouse or get married. Though, there are some helpful points of application which we'll see pertaining thereto. Ruth is not about how women can overpower a patriarchal society. However, the ladies in Ruth are held in very high regard. Ruth is not about altruism, though there are some very important lessons pertaining to that, which we'll see. The book is about, the book is about God working through human hardship and suffering to bring 
about his good redeeming plan. It is about God working through human hardship and suffering to bring about his perfect redeeming plan. Through the unavoidable disappointments and sorrows of this present world, the God of the Bible is masterfully bringing about his plan for his future perfect kingdom. Uh, So the fact that there are no apparent miracles, visions, dreams, supernatural events does not mean it's less helpful, but more helpful. The majority of life, this side of heaven, is, is pretty mundane. It's hard. Like, like 98% of life is like that. It's hard. It's confusing. It's disappointing. And, and so Ruth captures the honesty of that and the reality of that. Ruth is similar to the book of Job in that sense. Some have said that, some have said that Naomi is the female equivalent of Job. About 10 big picture themes in the book of Ruth I want us to have in mind as we enter in this journey. Where are we going? What are some sights we'll see? Number one, very briefly, the reality and difficulty of suffering. Ruth is about the reality and difficulty of suffering. I love the honesty about it here. Life and society is just very disappointing. Number two, however, God is in control. We'll see that, that he is in control of suffering, that hardship is not pointless, that hurricanes and famines have no purpose, do not have, are, are not purposeless, I should say, but when we fix our eyes on the God of Scripture, the purpose will emerge. Third, sovereign grace. God is a God of sovereign grace. He's not just in control of random things, but he's moving all things at his pace, to the perfect, eternal, joyful kingdom of Christ, heaven, which we await. Ruth shows how God is doing this, that the kingdom of that future, the king of that future kingdom, Christ, would come through David. Ruth shows that years before David comes on the scene, God's already bringing David up. Fourth, God's grace to all who come under his lordship. God's grace to all who come under his lordship. Ruth is a total outcast by human standards, a Moabite. Yet she says, you know what? I'm going to come under the God of the Bible because that is the most logical, rational, reasonable decision. And though from a wicked nation, the book shows how God will indiscriminately and richly bless anyone who comes under his lordship. Fifth, God's saving purposes extend beyond the Jews. Very important purpose here. God's salvation goes beyond the Jews. Huge theme that we see when Christ, after Christ is raised, ascended the New Testament. Beginnings of this in Ruth 6. God holds women in high regard. God holds women in high regard. The Bible has the highest and most dignified view of women, of course. We see that in Ruth. Seventh, God's faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. God's faithfulness to the Abrahamic promise. About seven centuries before the events of Ruth, God seeks out Abraham, initiates relationship with a Chaldean named Abraham, and he gives him a promise where he says, look, through you, though you're, you're one, I'm going to make an, an, a nation as numerous as the stars. And... Through you, 
all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Looking forward to Christ. And whoever blesses your nation, I'll bless them. And we certainly see God keeping that promise. He is moving forward and blessing all people groups of the earth, bringing about uh, the Davidic family line through whom Christ will come. Of course, Ruth blesses a Jew, and so she is richly blessed as well, a promise which still holds today. Eighth, we learn that as bad as human societies get, God always has a remnant. As bad as humanity gets, God always has a remnant. That is, as much as, as, as the waves of human depravity might be crashing and crashing, God always will have little island oases of the regenerate, of human beings who are saved and sanctified, salt and light. Ninth, the book is about exemplary godliness, God's grace, and people like Boaz and Ruth to model what faithfulness as an Old Testament believer looked like. Faithfulness to Torah, to Deuteronomy. And tenth, God's faithfulness to bring in a Savior, the Messiah to the world. God's faithfulness to bring the Savior, the Messiah. One writer says, quote, Ruth is really, uh, is really a chapter one of Israel's royal and messianic story. The beginnings of God bringing the single most individual, single most important individual in the universe, Christ, the Son of God, into the world. Recall back to the dawn of history, Genesis 1 and 2. The, the conditions are of a pristine, a purity, a goodness, a justice that, that we can't even imagine. But the first humans rebel against God. And since then, we are, all of us, sent, humanity is sent into a moral, spiritual train wreck. All humans born thereafter inherit a corrupt spiritual nature. But in Genesis 3.15, while like the juices of forbidden fruit are still dripping down the face of Adam and Eve, God says, but I'm not going to let things go out of control. I'm going to bring a Savior one day who will crush the head of Satan. And so the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3.15 and on, in part, is about God being faithful to that promise. We get to Genesis 12, Abraham. We get to Genesis 49. We see that this Savior is going to come through the tribe of Judah. We see the nation become as numerous as the stars in Exodus. 2 Samuel 7, David, the promise of a Messiah. And so Ruth is about God's faithfulness to bring in the Messiah. Much more we could say introductorily about the book. The time span is about 11 years in the book of Ruth, 11 to 12, taking place sometime between 1126 and 1105 B.C., the time of the judges. Some significant theological problems, apparent problems in the book of Ruth. How can God allow this suffering? The Jews were forbidden from interaction with Gentiles and especially Moab. How's that going to reconcile with like Boaz, a righteous man, marrying a Moabite, much less her being in the Messianic line? We'll get into that. Overall, this book is for anyone and everyone who is a human being. Are you human? This book's for you. More specifically, it's for anyone who is like weighed down 
with the normal but exhausting human depravity inside of us and outside of us, suffering all around us, whether small or large, whether family or society, whether physically or spiritually, this book is for you to see that in the midst of suffering. That it, though it may seem like that God is asleep, and what's he doing, and how can he allow this? That he is in control, that he's reigning over you regardless of your spiritual persuasion. He's reigning over you. He knows you. He sees you. He cares about you. And he is going to bring great good from every millisecond of suffering for all who would simply fall down on his arms in faith. Can you fall down on, can you fall down? God is your God. So we're only going to have a time to get through a couple verses tonight. The big idea of those verses, one way to see the big idea is this. Verses 1 through 5. Though God never abandons his people, the consequences of sin can be severe. Sort of some big picture way to see what's happening in these first five verses. Though God never abandons his people, the consequences of of sin, forsaking him, can be severe. Our outline as we travel through the text, just some sort of hooks to hang our thoughts on. We'll see this. Our outline is this. Five reminders for tough times. Five reminders for tough times. Whether uh, you worship the God of the Bible or whether you're an atheist or a Satanist or anything in between, these are critical reminders for you for tough times. Number one, number first reminder, there's no hope in the human race. There is no hope in the human race. We have decades, centuries, and millennia uh, to demonstrate that to you. We see this just in like the first phrase of verse 1. Look there with me, chapter 1, verse 1. Please look there with me. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Ruth. Now it came about in the days when the judges... Governed. Stop there. So immediately we have kind of the setting. Where are we in time? What's happening? And it's all so real. It's so human. It's so grim. And it's so normal. Lots of suffering with a small dash of rejoicing these days. Brief moments of ease immersed with, immersed in long periods of pain. This ominous phrase, it happened in the days of the judges, we can only expect moral and social carnage. This answers the question, what was it like in the days of Ruth? We could do an entire sermon on this phrase, but the days of the judges of Israel, of course, was a time after Moses and Joshua and before the uh, the Israeli monarchy recorded in, uh, the beginnings of which are recorded in Samuel, later in Kings, uh, hence, of course, the commentary in the book of Judges, there was no king. That phrase you see in the book of Judges, there was no king in these days. Judges immediately precedes Ruth and describes those days. Judges is that 21 chapter book, which records bits and pieces of, of the crashing, the, the, the carnage, moral carnage in society where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Ruth takes place during the time of 
the judges. Recall that statement in Judges 17, 26, and 21, 25. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The, the book, the, the Judges is a disturbing book. It means like an NC-17 rating. Read at your own caution. It was a few hundred year time span where things had de- disintegrated so badly in Israeli society that, that people actually thought it had gotten this bad. People actually thought that right and wrong were relative concepts. That's not a joke. Few ideas could be more illogical, irrational, and irresponsible. There was idolatry, rape, violence, pragmatism, confusion about sexuality, human slavery, gross immorality, civil war, apostasy, brutal murder, syncretism. It's almost like, okay, could we not have the book of Judges? But we need it for a very important reason. With a mention also of Bethlehem in verse 1. We're reminded of some disturbing scenes at the end of Judges. Bethlehem was linked to some of those very disturbing scenes in the last few chapters. This explains in part why Boaz commands his employees, don't touch Ruth. And Ruth, don't go in any other fields. It's hazardous out there. So the time of Judges was treacherous, especially in Bethlehem. And so this opening phrase reminds us that there's no hope in humanity. Judges and Ruth, in part, are given to remind us there is no hope in humanity. We need a Savior, these books convince us of. And the same is true today. There's no hope in salvation in humanity. And though humanity, I mean, we're, we're in a sense, we're, 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 we're at like the pinnacle of, of privilege in human societies and human history. But has those things, technology, these kind of things, comfort, have those solved our greatest problems? Has it eradicated self-centeredness, self-worship? Has it eradicated and purged us of, of conflict, of the world of chaos, of sin? Has it created a big enough spiritual catapult to launch us into heaven by our own doing? It has not. I read a few tragically funny stories recently related to Hurricane Irma. One was about some Pentecostal healers, quote-unquote healers, who said that they were going to jump out and rebuke Hurricane Irma and send it running back into the Atlantic. I looked at the, I looked at the radar earlier today, and there was a 400-mile-wide thing of green and orange and yellow just inundating Florida. I also read of individuals shooting guns in the hurricane, perhaps with similar hopes. These are just minuscule, tragic comedy commentaries that, like the days of Judges, our current day, there's no hope in humanity. You've got to look elsewhere. And the book of Ruth documents inerrantly how, thankfully, we have a great God who's in control. He knows there's no hope in humanity. He's going to send a Savior. We'll correct all errors, right all wrongs, judge all sins, and end all misery in the future kingdom of heaven. Number two, forsaking God, number two, is not a victimless crime. Forsaking God, no matter what your spiritual persuasion, is not a victimless crime. 
the consequences of not worshiping the God of the Bible would be very damaging. Look at verse 1 again. It came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. A famine in the land. As if things were not hard enough just living in the days of judges. Now there is a catastrophic food and economic crisis in Israel. Especially in times before heavy machinery, food storage, fast transportation, relief. A famine would be devastating. It reminds us that all is not well. Broadly speaking, the humans that were weak, a little lack of rain and things of this nature, were done. That we need God. More specifically though, the ancient Old Testament reader would know that something is not right spiritually, morally. A famine. And centuries prior, God promised to make Israel a nation of plenty. He chose tiny little Israel to be his nation of grace and privilege, not because they are the greatest and biggest, but because they are the smallest and, and, and least impressive. He chose them because he decided to. But grace always has responsibility that comes with it. Privilege always means greater responsibility. We see this in Deuteronomy very briefly. And we'll put it up here. Here's where... Here's the, the covenant God made with them. Now it shall be if you diligently obey Yahweh your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today. Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey Yahweh your God. Yahweh will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you if you keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you're called by the name of Yahweh and they'll be afraid of you. Yahweh will make you abound in prosperity and the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground in the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers to give you. Yahweh will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. However, though, if they are disobeyed, it shall come about if you do not obey Yahweh your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today. All these curses will come upon you and overtake you. He lists many in the rest of Deuteronomy briefly. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze and the earth iron. The Yahweh will make the rain of your land powder and dust from heaven. It shall come down on you until you're destroyed. So there is responsibility with receiving grace and salvation. A famine, therefore, means a famine in the land means there is a famine in the hearts of Israel. Far worse than no bread, there's no worship of God. And the irony couldn't get greater here because what does Bethlehem mean in Hebrew? House of bread. They were to respond to the famine with repentance. But this reminds us, there's a good lesson here. That failure to worship the God of the Bible has consequences. Abandoning God is not a victimless crime. Spiritual death will bring about physical death. A couple examples. Many economists attribute the 2008 financial collapse partly to financial carelessness, greed, a maverick approach, 
to people and lending and things like this. The legalization and acceptance of things like abortion, they don't just happen. They're the result of natural human depravity doing its work. Over time, self becomes God. If something like an unwanted pregnancy gets in the way, well, I have a right to perform as God and decide which life can stay and go. If a spouse decides it's more valuable to worship self and forsake a spousal covenant rather than God, a family's going to be plunged into heartache. Forsaking God is not a victimless crime. So the famine in Israel was not victimless. Who knows how many people in Israel suffered and died and little children died and and, and older people died and, and suffered because their hearts grew indifferent. Religion became a game. It became about flattering me and God's not really in that business and so they didn't really have time for that. Galatians 6, 8, to bring this into the New Testament, God says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The Greek word there, mock, it has the idea of like turning your nose. Whatever a man sows, this also shall he reap. For whoever sows to his own flesh, to the sinful desires, selfishness, in other words, you'll reap, you'll reap corruption. I mean, this is an absolute of the universe, beloved. But if you sow to the Spirit, to the Bible, obedience to God, you'll reap life. Sowing and reaping. This is a principle over you which you cannot dodge. Things don't just happen. Perhaps this might be going on in our life, some sowing and reaping in our lives. Perhaps God is allowing me to reap what I've sown so that I would see the emptiness of life and the futility of life without Him. In his love and his kindness, maybe he's showing you that you're without him, that you're dead in your sin, that you're lost, that you're unconverted, that you're not going to heaven, you're carrying the unbearable weight of your sin. And maybe God in his love is allowing you to reap reap what you've sown so that you'd be saved. Maybe God is allowing you to see the emptiness and futility of fighting God in some area, fighting him. You know the change he wants you to make. It's obvious, but you've been rationalizing and supposing you can sort of outwit and outlast God. I suppose you could ask Jonah how that ends up. Maybe we've forsaken God and did damage in other ways and personal pride and, and an unteachable spirit. Not, not able to receive counsel. That will, that, will, that will cause damage. Maybe spiritual laziness. A lethargy when it comes to the disciplines of grace, to reading scripture, to plugging into a New Testament church as God commands us to. Corporate worship. And we wonder, why, why am I lacking stability? Why am I lacking joy and peace? Why can't I get over certain long-standing sins? We reap what we sow. We have to ask ourselves sometimes, Will the short-term pleasure that this sin brings be worth the long-term disaster that results? God is a God of grace, but grace doesn't always insulate us from the consequences of our foolish decisions sometimes. Thankfully, He is a God of mercy. He's provided His own Son on the cross who died for our foolishness and for our sin. 
and who is also a God of restoration. When we turn to him, he'll, he'll restore us. Well, number three, third reminder in tough times. We have to, we've got to beware of pragmatic temptations and trials. We must beware of pragmatic temptations in trials. That, that during tough times, pragmatism will present itself as a, a, an alternative to God. Look at verse 1 again. Certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. So, Bethlehem. Lots of messianic history there. The house of bread isn't quite living up to its name, right? And so the leader of the house, Dad, Elimelech, leads the family out of Israel and into Moab. Essential to understanding the book of Ruth is we have to understand Moab. This nation uh, east of Israel no longer exists. Infamous history. Recall how the nation of Moab was started. Okay, remember Israel started through Abraham and Sarah. Moab was started this way. Genesis 19, a uh, a disturbing part of Scripture. Genesis 19, verse 24. Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Probably some think that's uh, Sodom and Gomorrah lo- located under the south end of the Dead Sea. Verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father's old, and there's not a man on earth to come into, the, to into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father the Moabites to this day. And so Moab, the word means from dad, from father. They'll always be known as that nation whose beginnings were less than ideal. They were often at war with Israel. Numbers 22, we can't turn there, with Balak attempting to curse Israel. Numbers 25, leading Israel into gross immorality. Judges 3, Moab oppresses them for 18 years. Moab worshipped the god Chemosh. Chemosh, remember him? C-H-E-M-O-C-H, S-H, excuse me. The religion of Chemosh involved child sacrifice. You would offer your, your baby, your kid, whatever, to appease this god, of course, We have a religion in our nation like that, except it doesn't involve fire as it did with Chemosh and the God is self. But Israel was in constant conflict with Moab. And as Zephaniah 2, Zephaniah written hundreds of years later, foretells the nation goes extinct. And it would later. Finally, what makes Ruth more complex is Deuteronomy 23, where it says this, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of Yahweh, None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of Yahweh because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, 
Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, Yahweh your God wasn't willing to listen to Balaam, but Yahweh your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because Yahweh your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or prosperity all your days. We're going to study later, how does this reconcile with Ruth? But in the meantime, Elimelech leads his family into Moab. In some sense, you can't blame him. The house of bread is out of bread. The Israeli economy is in the tank. However, in Old Testament times, God's people were commanded to trust God, even when it was hard to stay in the land and certainly not enter into a pagan nation of this sort which worshipped a detestable God. As difficult as it was, Elimelech sinned by his poor spiritual leadership in a man-centered, pragmatic way with a pragmatic decision. Pragmatism. The approach to life and God which says, well, doing it God's way is just not ideal. I got to live life. I got to be happy. The kids got to have a smile and have their shoes tied. And so I'll just do what's more practical, what's easier for me and the kids right now or if I'm single or whatever. A decision to disobey God because of expedience and to trust what we can see and predict. Worship our own reasoning. And for Elimelech, this wasn't a week and away. They moved there and stayed there. Thus, they would never be able to worship corporately. They would have to forsake all the Old Testament commands of gathering for worship. Elimelech is doing what is right in his own eyes. There's a lesson here. In difficult times, we've got to beware of temptation towards pragmatism. Well, I've got to be happy. I can't see how this will work. I've had a hard day. It's easy to worship God when the waters are smooth. It's quite another thing when they're rough. And in tough times, compromises and pragmatism will come and just beg for your attention the world and religious people will. Yeah, God says this, but it's just not realistic right now. Work is hard. Life is hard. Singleness is hard. The economy is hard. The kids are hard. Obedience is hard. God understands. And, 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 and he's realistic. He's a gracious God. He sure is gracious. But shall we sin that grace may abound? Proverbs 3, trust in Yahweh. With all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. On what you can see and feel and on economies. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and, and notice, He'll make your paths straight. It doesn't mean, it doesn't say He'll make them easy, but He'll make them straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think you know better than Him. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. We walk by faith, not sight. Dads, in what ways might we be tempted like Elimelech? I think we're doing the family good, but in reality, we're quietly teaching them that God really is just a God for when times are easy, which means he's no God at all. And they're, and they're definitely not going to worship that kind of a God. He's not useful. He's not a God, ironically. Others, pragmatism. Look, we worship a great God. He's so trustworthy. 
We don't have to think like the world. We don't have to worship like the world. We don't have to uh, worry like the world. We don't have to do weekends or finances or parenting or education or singleness like the world because we have a great God who's trustworthy. Number four. A few more minutes here. We've got to hurry. Number four. Building on this. Repentance of sin is preferable to man-centered solutions which perpetuate sin. Repentance of sin is preferable to man-centered solutions which perpetuate sin. God is so good. Look at verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. So, tragedy. The pragmatic decisions may work for the short term, but never for the long term. Dad dies. And again, Old Testament readers, discerning Old Testament readers, would understand this as judgment in terms of Deuteronomy 28. And notice they don't say, okay, you know what? I mean, we've sinned by leaving Israel, by coming to Moab. I mean, let's just turn back to God, our gracious God, before things get worse. But instead, they perpetuate the sins. What do the two sons do? Marry Moabite women. Forbidden in Old Testament times. Not for ethnic reasons, but spiritual. Deuteronomy 7 You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they'll turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. It's a spiritual, not an ethnic reason. And so they said, well, you know, it's like we're already here in Moab. At least we have food. The boys are getting older. We need to get wives for them. It's too much to do it God's way and go back to Israel. So... They integrated into Moabite culture, deep in the sin. They're there 10 years. Well, it worked out well to stay with Ruth. It would work out well with Ruth, absolutely. But the lesson there is not, well, sin and watch God clean it up. Repentance is the solution. When we compromise and continue in pragmatism, repentance of sin is preferable to man-centered solutions which perpetuate sin and the problem. And the good news is, beloved, this side of heaven you can always repent. God is that gracious. He made the universe. He died on the cross. So we never need to think, well, I'm just too deep in this. What's the use of turning from it? Oh, the use is that you don't go to hell, my friend. And that God is a great God who will forgive you. Number five and finally, Fifth reminder for tough times. God never forsakes us, even in the worst suffering. God never forsakes us, even in the worst suffering, whether it's directly self-imposed or something else. Look at verse 5. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children, and 
her husband. What started out as a as seemingly a, a minor compromise on dad's part. I'm doing the family good. I got to put a meal on the table. Ends up in his own death, childlessness of his two sons, and the two sons' early death in the land of Chemosh. The same ground that provided them bread also took their lives. Pragmatism will always cost you. Beware. Don't think you know better than God, my friend. Some of you do this. You, t- you totally do this. Don't think because you know theology and you say a prayer sometime and do this or that, that that, 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 that gives you like leverage to be pragmatic and sort of try to squeeze one in on God. You're not God. We're not God. If this isn't a helpful illustration of the fact that pragmatism doesn't work here in Ruth, I'm not sure what is. By the way, I forgot to note that Malon's name means sickly and Kilion's name means finished. Dunzo. So here the setting for the history of the book is total tragedy. Perhaps God seems absent. Naomi experiences incredible loss. Suffering is so hard. If it seems like suffering is really hard, sometimes it's because it is. But in her greatest suffering, God has not abandoned us. Naomi is struggling to believe this understandably. However, verse 5 is not the last verse in the book of Ruth. There's 80 more verses in the book of Ruth that will end with inklings of a Messiah. Some great news is coming. She doesn't know this. But she still had a few daughters-in-law, one of which would be an unimaginable blessing. It would take time. This trial lasts 11 years. But God never forsakes us, even in the worst suffering. Naomi has Orpah and Ruth. It's not the last chapter of her life. Your trials past, present, and future. You need to know that God is the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies who comforts us in all our affliction. Beloved, God will not abandon you in your toughest times. All your worldly stuff may flee, but Christ is with you always, even till the end of the age. The most important, the most valuable, the most joyful thing that no trial can take away is Christ. And on this side of the cross, we see Him. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. Turn to Christ, friend. Wherever you are, whatever your persuasion, fall on Christ. Turn to Christ who will never abandon you. Everything else will abandon you and disappoint you in trials, but not Christ. Your life is on sinking sand if you don't have Christ. Come to Him today. Come all the way to Christ. Abandon all other paper mache trinkets and idols. 
fall on Christ, dear friend. You don't need, the good news of Christ is you don't need to perform some valiant religious deed to sort of get Christ to finally be convinced to accept you. You just fall in faith on His nail-pierced hands. Can you do that? Father in heaven, thank you for your love. Your great, great love. Suffering is so real. Pragmatism is so tempting. Sin is so alluring. But oh God, would you give us strength, this side in the new covenant here, to turn to Christ and to trust you as our faithful God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.